Well, open your Bibles to Genesis 14, but we will only be there for a short amount of time. While you're turning there, as part of our every now and then, I'm going to do a little culture wars analysis. For those of you who don't know, the uh, in their excessive wisdom and another example of judicial activism, the Colorado Supreme Court on Monday threw out the death penalty in a rape and murder case because jurors consulted the Bible about the death penalty. And in the process, one of the jurors uh, brought, had brought a Bible and read a couple of passages from Leviticus, and the uh, other jurors all listened. Only about only five listened, according to the poll. They were all polled later in the course, and none of them said that the reading of the Bible verse had anything to do with their decision. They all decided apart from that. But because a Bible verse was, writ- was read, the Supreme Court of Colorado threw it out because they argued uh, they went to the Bible to find out God's position on capital punishment. The prosecutors argued that they... Uh, Argued jurors should be allowed to refer, should, uh, yeah, the prosecutors had argued that the jurors should be allowed to refer to the Bible or other religious texts. In the, in the process, what's discovered in case law is they, jurors are allowed to bring in other standards. They can bring in dictionaries, they can bring in rulers, what they can, in other words, they can bring in that which measures or presents an absolute by which to evaluate their decisions. But they can't bring in the Bible. Now, jurors are supposed to make these decisions based, uh, 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 we assume, on a set of values that they have. Now, the implication of this is that you can make decisions on any set of values other than that which is from the Bible. That's the implication. It's extremely dangerous, and the case will probably go to the U.S. Supreme Court. But that's just another example of how pagan the judiciary is in this nation and how so many judges are using their position on the bench to make law, to change the culture, and to force an an anti-Christian agenda on the nation. Well, that's all we have to say for all the negative things going on in our world around us. Let's go back to look at what was going on in the pagan surroundings of Abraham in Genesis 14. Now, the context, what we've seen so far is that Abraham has just gathered together his servants and those of his uh, Amorite neighbors, and they have defeated the army of the four kings that invaded from the Fertile Crescent. On their way back, we have an unusual meeting that takes place out in, uh, outside of Salem. The king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is, Abram, at the Valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, when we get into our study on Melchizedek, I'll point out that this is not some sort of precursor to communion. There's nothing stated in the text to indicate that this has anything to do with, with any sort of ritual or religious observance, just because he was a priest doesn't mean that the automatic reference to bread and wine has to do with uh, some sort of fellowship meal with God. They were sim- he was simply providing logistical uh, grace to the, uh, the armies that, and the men who had followed Abram. 
We're told there that Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High, El Elyon, a, a title of God that is related to the Gentile worship of God. This really references the, the fallback position of the worship of God back to Noah. Verse 19, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And he says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, El Elyon again, possessor of heaven and earth. Emphasis on the sovereign God, creator God, who owns everything on the earth. And then in verse 20, Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And once again, when we studied that, we saw that this was the Hebrew word, uh, Magan, which means to deliver or to hand something over as a gift. So the picture is that God owns everything, and he's the one who blesses us with whatever we have. And Abram, that's at the end of verse 20, Abram gave him a tithe of all, gave him 10%. That's what the word tithe means. Now, this raised the issue of what is the role of tithing. Many people are confused over tithing. Two points of review. First point, stated last time, God as the sovereign creator God is the owner and source of everything we have based on Genesis 14:20, and you can develop a number of other passages. Your job, your bank account, your investments, your 401k, your car, your house, everything ultimately belongs to God. The air we breathe, the grass that grows in our yards, everything belongs to God. He is the one who simply allows us to use this, and some he allows to have more than others. Therefore, point two, as the owner of everything, God is the one who gives us possessions as gifts. That's, this is the whole picture that we see here in Genesis 14. And then it is Abram who is returning a portion of this to God as part of worship. Now, last time we titled the message, The Truth About Tithing. This week I'm going to uh, continue what we started last time. And we're going to answer the question, is tithing for today? Because you can go to any number of churches and they have tithing. You will hear sermons on tithing and you will talk, hear some pastors talk about double tithing or triple tithing, especially if they're in a building program. I remember the pastor of an extremely large Baptist church here in Houston about 20 or 30 years ago when they were building their building was encouraging congregation members to take out a second mortgage on their home so they could triple tithe from that to the the church so they could build their building. Now, there's nothing wrong with people doing that of their own volition. Where I have a problem is that a pastor making that uh, a factor of giving, making people feel guilty if they don't, and using guilt as a motivation, which so often happens. Or they use some form of peer pressure. And that goes contrary to the whole principle of grace giving in the Scriptures. So let's review. We got through about four points last week. Let's just review them fairly quickly under the doctrine of the truth about tithing. First part of this is looking at the Old Testament Point number one, we saw that the first time the word tithe was used is in Genesis 14, verse 20, our passage. The last time that the word tithe is used in the Bible is in Hebrews 7, verses 2 through 6, which is a 
rehearsal of this very same episode. In neither episode do you have a command to tithe. That's very important to note these things. Whenever you go through and look at the Bible, you have to note the mood, you have to note the verbs, you have to note who's speaking and who are they speaking, uh, what the, to whom they're speaking, and this is no exception. There's no mandate here. What does that tell us? That tell us that tells us that for some reason, Abraham is presenting this tithe to Melchizedek. But it is not the result of a mandate from God. Even though we don't have mandates from God for sacrifices, we don't. Have, it's, I think it's clear from the Scripture that there's no mandate from God to do this. So we can't go back and say, on the basis of anything happening up to this point, that Abram is doing this in response to a divine command. Second point, we looked at the words. The Hebrew word is ma'asar, meaning a tenth or a tenth portion of something. It's from the participle men, meaning from, and the noun aser, meaning meaning ten. So literally the word means from, tenth, or a tenth. The Greek word used rarely in the New Testament. In fact, what we'll see in the New Testament is, is the words only used in the Gospels as Jesus is usually condemning the Pharisees because of the way they tithe and their inappropriate tithing, uh, and then it's used in the Hebrews uh, passage. Third point was that the first use in our passage is in a context that precedes the Mosaic Law. This, at best, implies that there's a general practice of giving a tenth in worship to God as a general practice, although you don't have a mandate at this point, which is point number four, that there is no mandate at this point to give a tenth, no command. It's just a free will response on the part of Abram. Fifth point I noticed was that we have parallels of this from ancient Near Eastern texts and indicate that this was a normative practice in a land-grant treaty. And that's very important to understand because the context of Genesis 12, when God gives Abram the land, is the structure of what was called a royal grant or a land-grant treaty where you would have a great king or monarch who, for whatever reason, usually designed to... to uh, create a buffer against uh, enemies, or maybe it was in response to something that uh, someone had done, a mayor of a city had done on his behalf, but he would give a grant of land to someone. And this was a gift. It was a free gift. And what we saw was in this uh, episode that I mentioned last time in Ugarit, which was in town in North Canaan, that the grant of land included the tithes. And the tithe, the term tithe was used as a form or as a synonym for a tax. So throughout ancient Near Eastern literature and even up into Greek literature in the classical period, you have this tithing going on and it's related to taxing. It's almost a synonym for tax. So 10% seemed to be a standard tax rate in the ancient world. Now we come to new territory, point number six. Point number six, from creation to the Mosaic law. 
This includes all of the pre-Israel dispensations, the dispensation of perfection in the garden, the dispensation of human conscience, the dispensation of of the uh, uh, patriarchs, I mean human government, the dispensation of patriarchs, uh, all the way up to the Mosaic Law, there is no mandate for giving. It's not until the Mosaic Law comes that you have a mandate for giving. So point number six, from creation to the Mosaic Law, all giving was free will giving. Otherwise, we'll call it grace giving. Now, there's a couple of things we have to point out when we talk about grace giving. First of all, giving, even under the Mosaic law, was not part of the spiritual life. So even though it's mandated in the, giving is mandated under the Mosaic law, it was never part of the spiritual life because the Mosaic law was addressed to every citizen of Israel, believer or unbeliever alike. What we mean by grace giving is that it's not Mandatory. Now, under the Mosaic Law, there were free will offerings, voluntary offerings, as we'll see, and there were mandatory offerings. And what we see is that throughout history, there's these two categories of, of giving on people. There's a mandatory giving, and there is a free will giving. And this runs throughout every era of history. Now, I'm not saying that that's in, in, in terms of your spiritual life. I'm just saying there's mandatory giving. What I'm going to point out in the church age, the mandatory giving is render under Caesar that which is Caesar. April seems like such a good time to point that out. And in the church age, what we have is an emphasis on free will giving. And we'll, we'll see how that plays itself out as we go through the scriptures. All I'm pointing out here is that from creation of Moses, all you had was free will giving. There's certainly taxation, but it's not mentioned in the scripture. We know it from extra, extra biblical literature. Now, when we talk about grace giving, we mean that a giving that is where the amount is not mandated by God. But what we have to understand is grace doesn't mean that there's no obligation. See, some, for some reason, a lot of Christians have gotten the idea that, oh, well, you know, we're under grace giving, so that means I don't have to give. See, Grace doesn't mean there's not a responsibility or an obligation. And I like to use the illustration of someone giving you the gift of a, of, of, of a very expensive car. Maybe it's a Jaguar, maybe it's a Mercedes, maybe it's a Lamborghini. But somebody gives you a new car, an expensive new car. It's yours, you have the title deed. That's grace. Is there an obligation with that? Sure there is. You have to keep air in the tires, you have to change the oil, you have to put gas in it, you have to get it tuned up. You have to go through the process of taking care of it. If you don't take care of it, it won't do you any good. If you don't fulfill the responsibilities and obligations inherent in having that privilege, then it doesn't do you any good. So grace doesn't mean there are no responsibilities and no obligations. If grace meant no obligation and no responsibilities, there would be no imperative moods in the New Testament related to the Christian life. The fact that there are imperative moods means that God has mandates for believers. It's not the basis of blessing, though. That's where we, where we get into problems. So one misunderstanding is that grace means that we don't have an obligation or a responsibility. 
Another misunderstanding is that people mean grace means it's free. I can go to this church. They believe in grace giving. I don't have to give anything. Wrong. See, grace doesn't mean it's free. It just means it's free to you. Somebody has to pay. See, the model is salvation. Salvation is free to us. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty. See, grace never means it's free completely. Somebody always pays. God the Father paid by giving His Son to go to the cross on our behalf and went through that period of time on the cross when He imputed the sins of the world to the Son, and there was this judicial separation between the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and the Father during those three hours on the cross. So grace doesn't mean that something is free. Grace means that it's just free to us, but somebody has to pay. So when it comes to uh, giving in terms of a local church or missionaries, Somebody has to pay. You've got to pay the light bill. You've got to pay for property. You have to pay the pastor. You have to pay all these things. Same thing on the mission field. Somebody's responsible for that, and that is the individual believers of a local church. So grace doesn't mean that you're a, you have no uh, giving responsibility. It's just that a set amount is not prescribed, but there are certainly principles that are given in Scripture. Okay, point number seven. Back to the Old Testament. The next mention of tithe. Now, to understand a concept, a basic rule of thumb is to trace it historically through the Scriptures. So the first time tithe is mentioned is in Genesis 14. The next time tithe is mentioned is in Leviticus chapter 27. In Leviticus chapter 27. And there it's related to the Mosaic Covenant and the giving of the tithe to 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 the Levites. Now, let's be reminded of something here. Leviticus 27 and all the other passages we're going to talk about related to Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all part of the Pentateuch and all related to the Mosaic Covenant. Now, just a reminder, covenant means contract. Just every time you hear the word covenant, don't spiritualize it, but just think in terms of a contract, a contractual relationship, a legal binding document between two people. Party of the first part, party of the second part. God is the party of the first part in all of the biblical covenants. And you have to determine who the recipient is. For example, in the Noahic covenant, it is between God as party of the first part and Noah as the representative of the entire human race as party of the second part. That means the Noahic covenant is still in effect today. The Abrahamic covenant is between God as party of the first part and Abraham as party of the second part and his descendants clearly spelled out in the text. You come to the Mosaic covenant. It is a temporary covenant. That's why you have, we'll get into all of this in Hebrews. The, the terminology new versus old is very clear. And the emphasis in the New Covenant is, means that the Old Covenant was, from its inception, understood to be temporary. But the Mosaic Covenant, given on Mount, on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, is between God as party, the first part, and his people Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three, not just one or two, but all three, physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's a legal contract. The Mosaic Covenant did not include Gentiles. 
you can go through all the major prophets. Those are the, those long prophets in the later part of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And if you notice, if you've got a study Bible, it talks about God's prophecy against Edom, God's prophecy against Moab, God's prophecy against Assyria, God's prophecy against Tyre, God's prophecy against Babylon, and goes through all these ancient uh, nations. If you read all of those, what you will discover is God never, ever condemns them for violating anything that's unique to the Mosaic Law. Condemnation is always based on either A, idolatry, or B, their treatment of Israel in terms of anti-Semitism. It's never based on their violation of the Sabbath, and it's never based on their uh, their disobedience to anything that's unique to the Mosaic Law. They're never condemned because they don't practice circumcision. They're never condemned because they don't tithe. But the Jews are condemned for violating the Sabbath. They're condemned for uh, not giving the tithe, as we'll see. So it becomes clear... Now, we have to pay attention to who these covenants are addressed to. God is making the covenant with the nation Israel. So all the tithe passages from Leviticus through Malachi are all related to the Mosaic covenant, which was a temporary covenant, and it ended with the law. Okay, let's move forward. Point number eight. Gentiles were not under the Mosaic law, and therefore were never under the Mosaic laws of tithing. Nevertheless, the free will offerings that characterized the human race from Adam to Abraham were still in effect. Gentiles could give out of their own volition, their own determination. They could give to the temple in Jerusalem. They could give to a priest. They could give to a prophet. They could give whatever they wanted to, but they were never mandated to give to support the Levites and priests or to support the temple or to support the widows and orphans in Israel. Gentiles were never held accountable for that aspect of the Mosaic Law. That was just for Jews. What we do see in point number nine, as we look at the Mosaic Law, is that the Mosaic Law recognized two categories of giving, free will giving and mandatory giving. And that was true even prior to the Mosaic Law. There was a mandatory giving in Egypt when people had to give during those seven years of plenty when Joseph was the vizier of Egypt and under Pharaoh and had had the warning from God in a dream that there would be seven years of famine. So during those seven years of prosperity, there was mandatory giving called taxation. And that's what we'll see is, ma- is mandatory giving in the Bible is generally related to taxation to support the local government, whatever it may be. We see a recognition of free will giving in Deuteronomy 12, verse 6. There, meaning to the central sanctuary, that's another important point. Where was the treasury office? Where was the central IRS office in ancient Israel? It was in the temple. And this was, or the tabernacle. This was true throughout the ancient world. Temples were used 
to store money. That's one of the reasons that they were usually attacked and sacked by invading armies is because they wanted all the loot that was kept there. That was one of the reasons that the uh, Ostrogoths, when they invaded down through uh, Turkey in 156 A.D., destroyed the temple to Artemis that was so famous in Ephesus that we've studied on uh, in our study of Revelation is because that's where all the Ephesians kept all their money. That was the national bank. So the there refers to the temple. There you take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes. That's your mandatory tithes under the Mosaic Law. The heave offering, actually there's no heave in the original. It's just an offering or a contribution. That's what the word means. The contributions of your hand, that is physical uh, offerings that you may bring, the fruit of your produce, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and that's the Hebrew word nedavah. And nedavah simply means an offering or a contribution from free motivation. It is not, the amount isn't mandatory, it is simply the gracious response of the individual or the in gratitude for all that God has provided for him. So you see in this passage you have two different categories, tithes and free will offerings. Tenth point, under the Mosaic Law there were actually three mandates for tithing or giving 10% to the state. And that's what we have to understand as a background, is that Israel was a theocracy. Now what does theocracy mean? from two compound of two Greek words, theos, meaning God, and krasis, meaning power. Theocracy had to do with the rule of God, just as democracy literally means the rule of the mob, from demos, meaning the masses of the mob. So democracy really supports mob rule. You have oligarchy, which is the rule of an elite few, and other forms of government. But in a theocracy, God is the, the head of state. And that was the situation in Israel. God was the uh, executive branch and the legislative branch. He's the one who set forth the law. What you have in, in terms of the prophets and the judges is that's the judicial branch. The prophets often represented God to the people and challenged the people for their for breaking the law. And the judges were also responsible for making decisions on a practical basis uh, in the courtroom between people. The term judge in the Old Testament carries a wide range of meaning. It can mean anything from what we would call a sort of a... Uh, I mean, a justice of the peace, civil court to criminal court to military leader. Now, in understanding that, we understand that if God is the, is the legislative branch and the executive branch, then what we have in, in, in terms of the priests and the Levites are the bureaucracy that runs the state. They're the ones who are teaching the law to the people. They are the ones who take care of the treasury and the temple. They're the ones who oversee the administration of the, of the sacrifices. So in essence, what you have is to have to understand is the Levites were the bureaucracy in the theocracy. So the first category of a tithe went to support the Levites. Numbers 18, 21, and following goes through these particular 
gives the basis for this particular tithe. It was a 10% mandate on every Jewish citizen. Now, let's go back to basic Bible study methods. Who's talking here in Numbers 18, 21? God's talking. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to Canaanites? No. Is he talking to Assyrians? No. Is he talking to Greeks? No. He's talking to the Jews within the context of the Mosaic Law, that is, the constitution that God is giving to Israel to rule both in terms of civil government and in terms of the ritual uh, of the state. So he says, Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance. And the word inheritance means a possession. Now, why does he do this? Well, he explains. This is given to them in return for the work which they perform. And they're not just lazing around, although in apostasy that's what happened. But they are performing work. So this is their pay. They, they, it's legitimate to pay the priests for their work. Uh, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Verse 22, hereafter the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting lest they bear sin and die. Verse 23, but the Levites shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. See, all the other tribes got a designated portion of real estate that was to be kept in that tribal allotment forever and ever. But the Levites didn't have any real estate. So what did they get? They got 10% from everybody. Because they were scattered throughout all the nation, and their task was to teach people the, the uh, law and to teach them doctrine. Verse 24. For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them, among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. Now, this isn't in practice today. The law ended. There are no Levites practicing in the temple. Therefore, this tithe is not relevant to anybody. You can't make it apply to the church age. You can't make it apply to pastors because pastors aren't priests. Not in the sense that everybody, except that everybody in the church age, every believer is a believer priest. So it can't, you can't even stretch it by some sort of allegorical interpretation. This was specifically related to the support of those who served in the tabernacle and then uh, the temple. So three points of observation here. First point, Israel was a theocracy under the Mosaic Covenant. Therefore, the Levites were the bureaucracy of the theocracy. You can't escape that. This is just basically supporting all the bureaucrats in Jerusalem as opposed to the bureaucrats in Washington. There's always bureaucrats. Jesus said, war will have with us always. We could paraphrase that to bureaucrats will have with us always. Point number two, Levites were not given any portion of the land as an inheritance, so the tithe of the rest of the nation was their inheritance or possession. That was equivalent to the land that God gave everybody else in Israel. And point number three, the Levites in turn took one-tenth of everything they received and gave it to the Lord for the support of the high priest. So the high priest gets a tenth of the tenth. He gets a tithe. So you could even make a case that this is a fourth tithe in the Mosaic Law, but we won't push it quite that far. Okay, the next 
tithe is given in Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 26. And this is a slightly different tithe. This is, to me, this is always one of the more interesting tithes and, and aspects of the Mosaic Law. For those of you who like to party, this is your tithe. Deuteronomy 14.22, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. In other words, you're going to go agricultural society, you're going to go out, and one-tenth of all the, the fruits and vegetables and grain and milk and everything that's produced on your farm, you're going to bring that to Jerusalem. And you're going to have a feast, party time, national celebration on an annual basis. So it's 10% the tithe goes to, to, to the Levites. Another 10% goes to this particular celebration. So that's 20%. Verse 23, And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. Now, where do you think that was? That's in the tabernacle and then in the temple. This is very important to understand. You take the tithe to the temple. The tithe of your grain and your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. This was a great visual lesson on the spiritual condition of the nation. Let's go on. We'll see the point. Verse 24, but if the journey's too long for you, so see how practical the law is? Well, it's, maybe it's too far if you're way up in Dan, up in the north, to, you're going to have a cattle drive to drive all your, your cattle and sheep and goats down to Jerusalem. Well, that, that's a little inconvenient, so it would be better just to sell it up in Dan and bring the money. A lot easier to travel. And God recognizes that. He says, but if the journey's too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money, take the money in your hand, and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses. And then when you get to Jerusalem, the Levites will take it and convert it to whatever is needed in order to feed everybody at this huge annual national celebration. Verse 26, And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires. I love that. You shall spend the money on whatever your heart desires. You want to go get a bunch of chocolate cake and bluebell ice cream or whatever it is you want, go get it. If you want seafood, that's that, of course you can't have catfish or lobster, but you can get some other seafood that's not uh, that that's, uh, fits the law. Uh, you shall t- spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink. They were going to have a party. For whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. This is national celebration of God's goodness to the nation. They would take 10% of the gross national product and they would spend it on a national party. They must have had a really good time. But let me, let me, let me give you an illustration of this. Let's say one year you have a tremendous increase in everything. I mean, the produce is good, the agriculture is good, your God has really blessed the nation because you're obeying the law and you're uh, applying doctrine. 
And so God blesses a nation. This is a concrete visual image that God gave the nation. They would measure their blessing by their physical prosperity, their economic prosperity. And so you come together and you have a party, and this year everybody's having a tenderloin, everybody's eating filet mignon, everybody's drinking a, a really good 25-year-old single malt scotch, they're drinking single-barrel bourbon, they're having... Uh, uh, Lafitte Rothschild wine, they're just having a great party. Ten years later, they slip into carnality. And now the gross national product has fallen off. They're showing up with fried chicken from churches. They're drinking Miller Lite. You know, they're, they're, they're having to cook, cook their own moonshine. It's pretty obvious. Wait a minute. We were really doing well ten years ago. We had a great party. What's happened? See, this was sort of an annual barometer that God gave them within the law to measure the prosperity of the nation so that they could get a a good feel of how they were doing spiritually because the prosperity of the nation was directly tied to their spiritual life in the Mosaic Law. So this was the second tithe. Then every third year you have a third tithe. Every third year there was a third third tithe, and this was the charity tithe to take care of the Levites and the widows and the orphans. And this is described in Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. At the verse 28 says, at the end of every third year you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. So that would be in each individual location, so that the locals who were, indig- who were um, uh, having tr- trouble, having difficulty, uh, could, take, could have access to it. Verse 29, And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, he doesn't have any way to generate income. Uh, and the stranger, that would be the foreigner. I always love that where they call people foreigners. You know, in French, the word for foreigner is stranger. Think about it. The stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. So see, there's a basis for some sort of national welfare in the law. God is a compassionate God. We all know that there are situations beyond our control, no matter how responsible we may be, no matter how well we may be in, in, in investments and in work all of our lives. Things can happen living in the cosmic system, and people can lose everything. And so God does have a safety net in the Mosaic Law. It's just a, not a safety net that is going to allow people to live at a high level of economic prosperity, but it's going to take care of them, food, shelter, and clothing. Point number 12. There was also free will giving. Those are the three mandatory taxes on every citizen. But there's free will giving, and free will giving was the basis for constructing the tabernacle. This is described in Exodus 35, 29, and 29, 36.3. The Israelites, all the men and women whose heart moved them to bring material for all the work. See, it wasn't because they were manipulated by guilt. It was in gratitude because God just brought them out of Egypt, gave them freedom. So their heart moved them. It was their own volitional decision. 
moved them to bring material for all the work which the Lord had commanded through Moses to be done. They brought a free will offering to the Lord. They made up their own decision how much they were going to give to the Lord. There's no percentage related to this. In Exodus 36.3, they received from Moses all the contributions. This is the, the they is the workers in the, on the tabernacle. All the contributions, that's the free will offerings, which the sons of Israel had brought to perform the work in the construction of the sanctuary. And they still continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. So even under the Mosaic Law, you had mandatory gifts, which was taxation to run the state, and you had free will offerings, which were related to uh, other benefits in the uh, ritual life of the church. There is a number of other passages that also talk about <coughs> free will offerings. Leviticus 22, 28 to 23. I think I have a slide on this. Leviticus 22, 28 to 23, uh, 23, 38. Leviticus 27, 30, uh, 27, 30 to 31. Numbers 15, 3. Deuteronomy 12, 6. Uh, Ezra 1, 4. And Ezra 3, 5. So all throughout this period, there's a recognition of two categories, mandatory tithes and free will offerings. Of course, Israel, when they were apostate, they quit giving. They didn't pay the tithe and they didn't have bring free will offerings. And the tabernacle fell into uh, disrepair, ill repair. And the, later on, the uh, tabernacle also suffered during the time of the apostasy after, after Solomon. During Hezekiah's reform, there was a return to the tithe. This is given in Second Chronicles 31, verses 5, 6, and 12. This is point number 13. Hezekiah's reform saw a return to the tithe. So it's, they, their coffers were full again, and people joyously gave. Point number 14. After, before we get into point 14, Hezekiah's reform came, and then, as you know, within a 100 years, the southern kingdom, northern kingdom had already gone out under discipline. The southern kingdom goes out under discipline when Nebuchadnezzar comes in in 586 B.C. down to the first return of uh, in 536, and you have various returns under Zerubbabel and uh, Ezra and then Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, we're told that they reinstated the tithe. Why? Because they're going into the second temple now. They've, they're rebuilding the temple, and they're, they need to have the support for the Levites. They've reinstated the priesthood. So in Nehemiah 10.38... We're told the priest, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. So the priest, the descendant of Aaron, would be the high priest. And he would be with the Levites when they receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house. And the word there for house is the Hebrew word bayat. Bayat, which is just a term for the house, but it's the house of our God. Now, what's the house of our God? This is the temple. So another word for the temple was the house of God. Why? Because the Shekinah glory had dwelt there. There are no houses of God today. A church is not a house of God. 
Your body is a temple of God where the Holy Spirit dwells, and that's the only real sanctuary around. This room is not a sanctuary. No church has a sanctuary other than the individual bodies of the individual believers. So the Levites would bring a tenth to the house of our God, to the rooms of the storehouse, and the Hebrew word for storehouse was the otzer. The otzer, O-T-Z-A-R, the otzer. So Deuteronomy, I mean, Nehemiah 10.38 is a practice showing the the reinstitution of the Levitical priesthood. Now, one thing I want you to note is you have a mandate back in Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy to give those three tithes. That's mandated. It's imperative mood. You don't have an imperative mood here. This is just describing their obedience to the law. It's description. It would be in the indicative mood, in the mood of reality. Then again in Nehemiah 12:44, at the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings. That's the place inside the temple where they kept the money. It's the vault. The first, where they kept the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portion specified by the law. What law is that? The law of Moses. We're back in that contract again. For the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. So this shows their positive volition, and they're glad to support the priests and Levites. Nehemiah 13.5, And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. Notice that. They not only got tithes, but they got wine. And, you know, if we're going to go back to tithing, then I think folks in the congregation need to be giving wine to the pastor. I just think that would be consistent, don't you? So they're giving tithes to the, to the Levites again. It's the application of the Mosaic law. Then we come to, Deuteron- to Nehemiah 13.12. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and oil to the storehouse. This is the storehouse in the temple. Now, I've laid this case out because... We're going to move from here to the 15th point, which is challenges to Israel's failure to pay the tax. After they return to the land, there's this initial euphoria where they're all excited about supporting the temple and supporting the Levites and paying their taxes. Ten 10% is not an onerous tax, so they're pleased to do that. But after a while, they start falling apart. Now, I want to show you a passage in Ezra before we get to Malachi, where the problem occurs. In Ezra, we have the same terminology we have in Nehemiah. Whoever is left in any place where he dwells, this is Ezra 1.4, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings. Notice, these aren't tithes. These are free will offerings for the temple, for the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Now, I've laid out this case because we have to understand the most abused verse, one of the most abused verses in the Old Testament, and that's in Malachi 3.8 and 3.10. Will a man rob God? This is God speaking. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, what way have we robbed you? In your tithes and offerings. See, tithes were the mandatory, offerings were the free will. And God's saying, you robbed me. Under what principle? 
under the principle of the Mosaic law. This is, God is just saying you're disobeying the law. Verse 10, this is the abused passage. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, God says. Well, what are we talking about here? The storehouse is in the house of God. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. What does he need food in the house for? So he can, so the, it's the, the welfare program, so the widows and orphans and the Levites can be taken care of when they're destitute. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, into the temple. Is there a temple today? No, there's not. Are there Levites today? No, they're not. Unless you, you know, you can't go in and just take a scalpel and cut this verse out without doing damage to the entire fabric of the Old Testament. So when we come to tithes, we can't talk about it in terms of the church age because this is all part of the Mosaic law. It all fits together. So the Lord of hosts says uh, to them, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this. In other words, just see what's going to happen if you don't do this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not, And if you do this, I will open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. That goes directly back to the promises in the Mosaic law that if you obey me, I will bless you materially, physically, and financially. And if you don't, I won't. But that's not, that doesn't function that way in the New Testament at all. What happens when you get to the New Testament is you have to deal with passages like Romans 6, 4. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. See, there is a shift in contract now. The contract is no longer the Mosaic Covenant. Romans 10, 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. It's over with. The Mosaic law was terminated when Jesus Christ died on the cross. That ends the priesthood. Therefore, there's no tax for the priesthood. In 70 A.D., when the nation Israel was wiped out, there's no more more annual tithe for an annual party. There's no need to support the widow and orphan in Israel. All of those commands were tied to that. They have nothing. Nothing whatsoever to do with the church age. They have nothing to do with Christianity in the church age. However, the principle of free will giving certainly continues. And this is the emphasis that we see in the New Testament. And so we have to make a shift to go from the New Testament, Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, if you're going to, if you're going to continue to teach tithes, that's just fine. But if you do that, you have to take the firstborn of the sheep, the lambs that are without spot or blemish. You have to go to the temple and you have to sacrifice them. You have to support a Levitical priesthood. If you want to be, if you want to do that, you have to be consistent. You can't just come in and separate that from the text. Once again, you have to pay attention to who's talking. It's God. Who's he talking to? He's talking to Jews. He's not talking to the church. And it's just silly to think that what's going on in the Old Testament has anything to do with the church other than an example. And it does provide an example for us. It provides an incredible example for us. And it's an example of free will giving. Now, Jesus nails the, the, the first time you have tithing mentioned in the New Testament is in Luke 11:42 and Luke 18:12, where Jesus just castigates the Pharisees because they're only going to tithe from what they have left over. 
What a legalistic approach. Well, I'm going to pay all my bills this month, and then whatever's left over at the end of the month, I'm going to give. That's what I'm going to tithe. Well, that's not what the Lord had in mind. He had in mind, you know, every now and then you have people say, well, how much should I give? Should I give, you know, if I'm going to give 10%, should that be gross or net? You know, before taxes or after taxes? Well, you just missed the whole point right away, so don't give anything. You know, you don't understand grace. And what the Pharisees were doing is they were waiting to the end of the month. They had $10 left over. They'd give a dollar to the Lord and say they satisfied the law. So Jesus just roundly condemns their practices. Second thing that we see in the New Testament from the Lord is that giving was to be a private matter between the believer and God. It was not something that was supposed to be done in public so that other people could see what you were doing or how much you were giving. Now, I understand that some people say, well, it's important to do that visibly so that that can serve as an example. But that's not what the Scripture says. Look at Matthew 6, 2 through 4. Matthew 6, our Lord says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory for men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, including giving in the local church, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's a matter of privacy. Verse 4, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Principle, if it's done in public, you get your reward from the adulation of the people. If you do it in secret, then the Lord takes care of the reward. Third principle, the New Testament recognizes free will giving. That's the basis for New Testament giving. It is on the basis of grace. It is the principle of gratitude, just like uh, Abraham to Melchizedek. It's gratitude. He gave 10% of what he had, 10% of the spoils from his victory he gave to Melchizedek. Nobody said he had to do it. He did it out of gratitude to God for giving him victory. That's the test of his spirituality at that particular episode. He has given this tremendous victory, and now the issue is, is he going to be arrogant and think he did it on his own, or is he going to have true humility, which was manifest in gratitude to God, and give back to the Lord 10% of what he has been given? And that's the principle for the believer. Everything that we have in life is from the Lord. And the principle in giving is that we gladly, generously, graciously give back to the Lord from what he has given us because we're recognizing all that he has done for us. And it truly is a measure of our understanding of grace and our gratitude. That's why it's called grace giving. It's it's not just some means to say, oh, gee, now I don't have to give 10%. I'll just give 1%. And it's really sad. You realize that the average giving in most churches is less than 2%. And I'm I'm talking about even churches that emphasize tithing. Less than 2%. That's an abomination. It really is. That shows there's no gratitude of what God has given us. And not only that, but when you look across denominations, it gets even worse. You, and and the, the ones that emphasize tithing usually are the most generous. I mean, it's amazing. I know a church the size of our church right here in Third Ward in Houston. 
And I was talking to the pastor a couple of years ago, and I said, he had just finished putting up a building. What did it cost you? I said, oh, about $350,000. Wow, that's pretty good for a church that size. I said, what's your annual budget? Oh, about 250000 Where are you located? Third Ward. Wow. It's pretty impressive. You know, people are really giving. A couple of years ago, I was talking to the director of uh, alumni placement at Dallas Seminary, and I said, on, on, on the salary scales, uh, what, what do pastors generally get? He says, well, it depends on the denomination. If you're a Presbyterian or Episcopal, a pastor of a large church of a thousand or more probably make 150,000. So what if you're a Baptist? Maybe 100, 110,000. What if you're in Bible church? Oh, 60 to 90,000. Bible churches believe in grace giving. Oh yeah, but that for Bible churches, that means they don't have to give. And you see, that's a tragedy. Because we don't honor our pastors, we don't even, we, we don't take care of things. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's just a sad testament to the more grace you believe in, to the less you're willing to express gratitude. And that just goes across the board. And so we have missionaries that just make do with hardly anything, and that's a tragedy. Here are people who, who are willing to dedicate their lives to giving the gospel in some foreign culture. And they do it on a shoestring. And they, and you know, things are better, I think, now for, for some missionaries, but for a lot of missionaries, they were left, oh well, you know, the kids have all gotten through the hand-me-downs, now let's give it to the missionary. And they get the, the third best, fourth best, instead of what's best. So there needs to be a challenge to us in this whole doctrine of giving. And next time we're going to come back and look at the passages in, in Corinthians where Paul deals with the biblical principles for Grace giving and generous giving. Now, just just a little caveat here. I'm not going through this to lay a guilt trip on everybody. Trouble is, whenever we start dealing with money, even I feel guilty. You know, we all do, because the Word of God stomps on us every now and then. And for a while here, we've stomped on the people who believe in tithing. Now it's time for the, let the Word of God maybe step on our toes a little bit. If we need some correction, remember the Word of God is... Alive and uh, the Word of God is uh, all Scripture is God breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. So, if uh, we need to respond a certain way to the teaching of the Word, then we need to do it. If not, then uh, then that means that we've understood the Word already and we're applying it with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged in this area of uh, finances and grace giving and what it means to, to really be grateful to you for all that you have provided for us and all that you have supplied for us. And we just pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave everything for us that he might be our Savior, that we might have eternal life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.